welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and in this episode, I am going to be discussing a collection of short stories not written by Agatha Christie, but sanctioned by the Agatha Christie estate. This is Marple the new collection of Miss Marple short stories. I spoke a little bit about this collection with David Braun, Agatha Christie's publisher, who shepherded the process by which this collection came about, along with a few other folks over at HarperCollins UK. We didn't get into the weeds of those stories, however, and I knew that I would have to do this in conversation with someone else rather than just monologuing, as I so often do. And for this conversation, I turned to a very good friend of mine and the podcast. That would be Brad Friedman. I will sing his praises once we make the jump into the conversation that Brad and I had a few days ago. So let's do that right now. I am so excited to be here with my good friend, Brad Friedman. Uh, Brad is a former teacher whose obsession with and expertise on classic crime fiction and cinema is pretty much unparalleled. He is a heck of a writer himself, and you can see that for yourself on his blog, which just so happens to be my very favorite blog in the world. And that's not just because he's been so kind to me and Catherine about the All About Agatha podcast on his blog. And it's called Ah Sweet Mystery, Celebrating the Golden Age of Detection in Books and on Screen. And if that title doesn't make you weak in the knees, then what are you doing listening to this podcast? He talks about all the things that you are already thinking about and talking about with your friends on this blog. It has been such a pleasure to check in with it regularly now for the last couple of years. I've linked to Brad's blog actually in the notes for this episode, but the URL is ahsweetmysteryblog.com, A-H-S-W-E-E-T-M-Y-S-T-E-R-Y-B-L-O-G, in case you'd like to type that in for yourself. And really, I do encourage you all to check it out. You won't be sorry. So I've been meaning to have Brad on for quite some time, and he recently did a blog post about the new Marple collection of 12 short stories by contemporary mystery authors. And when I read that blog post, I knew that I had found the topic we were destined to discuss together here on this podcast. So here we are. Welcome, Brad. Thank you, Kemper. It's so good to be here. All right. So we are going to have a fairly freewheeling, freestyle discussion here of this collection, which I think is actually very much in the spirit of the collection itself. Before we get into it, I just want to point out the obvious, which is that we will be spoiling these stories left and right. So if you have not yet read Marple, <laughs> the new collection of Miss Marple short stories, pause this episode right now and read it before listening to what Brad and I have to say, because we will be spoiling things here. So I don't want anyone to uh, get all up in arms about that. I suppose the best way to do this, Brad, is just to start at the beginning, because there is just a lot to, I think, appreciate here and to delight in. So let's start off on the first story, which was written by Lucy Foley, big, big mystery author. She's just written hit after hit after hit recently. I'm sure many listeners are familiar with her. She wrote a short story called Evil in Small Places. And we are not going to be doing plot summaries or plot breakdowns like we do on the regular podcast for each of these stories. We would be here truly forever if we did that. So my little too long didn't read TLDR breakdown is that this is the one where Miss Marple's friend did it. 
<laughs> she comes to stay in the in the village of Mayon Maltravers, which is a fabulous name for an English village. And her school friend Prudence is her host. And uh, you know, unfortunately, it turns out that Prudence is a cold-blooded murderer who uh kills a local woman with the help of her own daughter, because that local woman uh knows that Prudence had previously killed her second husband. So just a delightful uh story of murder and mayhem for Miss Marple in a small village. For me, this felt very authentic, actually, to the Miss Marple that I came to know and love through Agatha Christie. I think some of the stories in this collection chose to be a little bit more audacious, which I also very much appreciated. And I think in general, I tended to organize these stories in two camps, one where authenticity as to Miss Marple, the character in the Christie verse, uh, seemed to be ascendant, and one in which audacity as to, hmm, let's take Miss Marple and put her in a situation we've never seen before or among characters that we're not used to seeing her among, et cetera, et cetera. And, and both, I think, ended up with really interesting results that I appreciated. But this one fell more on the authentic side of the spectrum for me. I thought this was a very appropriate way to start the collection, particularly to soothe the feelings of those Agatha Christie purists who might be approaching this collection with a lot of anxiety, because this also, to me, felt very authentic. I, I place it as kind of early marble. I believe it takes place in the mid 40s, but it felt like the kind of marble you would meet in Body in the Library or mm-hmm. Moving Finger. It was very moving finger to me. And fully, fully uses a lot of tropes of Christie's that I think fit in really well here and made me feel at home. I think that's such a good point, Brad. It's almost like being guided gently into the pool. You're able to dip a toe in rather than just being thrown headfirst into the water and made to sink or swim. I think there really was a strategy. Of course, there was a strategy as to how they organized these stories in the collection. And Lucy Foley is a great way to begin. You know, I was also really impressed overall with how many references to Miss Marple novels and short stories there are in all of these stories. You know, there's a great reference to the body in the library in this one, for instance. There had been an incident she had been involved in a little while ago, and fingernails had come into it. (laughs) And then also the Lady of Shalott is quite significant in this. And that, of course, relates to the mirror cracked from side to side. But yes, that's such a good point, too, that I think it is on the earlier side of Miss Marple. And we'll see a lot of depictions of late Miss Marple in this collection as well. And it probably would have been pretty jarring to start with that, even though it's not like we have anything like a linear chronological progression of Miss Marple. It's 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 by no means, I think, as meticulous as that. But it still is a, a really good way to uh, start things off. You pointed out both my Easter eggs that the major clue has to do with fingernails. Griselda Clement is mentioned, Dr. Haydock. She's knitting an Argyle jumper for Raymond West. She does so much knitting in this collection. She drops so many stitches in this collection. Yes. Um, But she also is cluing it like Christy Wood in a way. So it felt, as you said, more on the authentic side, the idea of the victim's name being Botant. And then uh, the the murderer's last name is Fairweather and little clever things like that, that Christie has herself used. And also just the idea of fully allowing Marple to kind of talk about her 
philosophy of villages. She says, uh, in my experience in such places, one is often considered a newcomer for several decades before being truly accepted into the fold. 15 years is like the blink of an eye, explaining why prudence might feel a little out of touch with the rest of the village. Except, of course, that's a red herring because in the end, there's another reason why prudence is out of touch. She's a monster. Absolutely. Yeah. I loved how the story started off with, it was two weeks, I think, after Guy Fox Day, which actually was just a number of days ago. We've had firecrackers and explosions going off and there's talk of the dangerous streets, right, in this village. And of course, since this is a Miss Marple story, the danger is right there in the drawing room or the parlor. And yeah, it's just very, very classic Miss Marple. And I think Lucy Foley, not every writer in this collection, I think, approached the task of writing a Miss Marple short story the same way. Some clearly did try to write like Christie and to have their story read like a Miss Marple story would read, both as to sentence by sentence construction and the construction of the mystery. And I think she did both here and she did both quite well. So, um, yeah, a great opening here for our collection. Let's move on, though, to the second story, because in some ways, this is my favorite. Actually, I gasped when I started to read Val McDermott's The Second Murder at the Vicarage. My TLDR on this one is the one where Mary from The Murder at the Vicarage is the murder <laughs> victim, which is so fantastic. And the reason why I gasped is that this story is narrated by Leonard Clement, the narrator from the murder at the Vicarage. And he is officially now, I can say, now that we have covered all 66 of Christie's books, he is one of my favorite first-person narrators of Agatha Christie's in the entire Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. I love Leonard Clement. Oh my God. He's so good. He's, you know... Friend of the podcast, Sophie Hanna, always talks about how she points to the characterization that Christie does early in The Murder at the Vicarage as to the relationship between Griselda and Leonard and how and why they met and got married. The foundation their marriage rests on as a light example of how good she is with characterization. And she's so right about that. The Murder at the Vicarage truly is one of my very favorite Christie's. And I am happy to report that I think Val McDermott knocked it out of the park in terms of the narrative voice just this the is the opening line. read the first line it's... oh my god brad i was just about to do that this is why we're doing this together i have it right here this is the first line to have one murder in one's vicarage is unfortunate to have a second looks remarkably like carelessness or worse and i was just like oh oh my god the heavens have opened i <laughs> how is it possible that i could be this happy right now i got um, fluttery i got fluttery <laughs> <laughs> and you know that that i would say is both authentic and audacious actually to inhabit leonard clement as as the narrator as christy did i appreciate that she was bold enough to do that and i think she really did pull it off i will say i don't think that the mystery itself in this story is as good as the mystery in some of the other stories we have here. I think the puzzle construction is a bit lacking, but the voice is just superb. I forgot who had done it, and then I reread it for our talk, and it does feel tacked on at the end. The murderers are almost extraneous to the joy of basically a slice of life of 30s St. Mary Me. Um, Absolutely. Brad, it's that's so funny. I had to do the same thing in preparation <laughs> for this. I, you know, I was reviewing all of them, obviously, because it's been a couple of weeks. And this right. is one where I had, I remembered Mary was the victim, but I was like, wait, 
what happened again? <laughs> like I had no recollection. And really, you know, the crux of it too, the fact that there's this sleazy politician who's like caught in flagrante with a romance novelist in the woods is not very Christie-ish. Again, I'm not clutching my pearls here. I'm not saying Christie is cozy. Christie had sex. Christie had debauchery. You know, she chose to write it in the way that she did. But both the incident that the puzzle hinges on, but more importantly, I think the construction of the puzzle, which does feel very tacked on at the end, didn't feel very authentic to me, even though, you know, I give this so many points for for voice. I would say it wasn't uncommon for a uh, Miss Marple novel to contain a solution that seemed to come out of nowhere. <laughs> did. I will also point out one of my favorite Easter eggs in the book, and that is that Miss Marple tells Leonard that the murderer had picked up a dress in Miss Pollitt's dress shop. And I'm not going to give away the ending to a short story, but I think it was the first short story of Miss Marple that I ever read. And uh, to have Miss Pollitt mentioned here, I think it's a lovely touch. I mean, Brad, I was just about to make the exact same point. I'm, I'm, I'm not Gosh. joking. That was Sorry. my la- the last thing that I had to say about this is that the reference to tape measure murder was uh, just mwah, chef's kiss perfect. Obviously, this story references murder at the vicarage up the wazoo, but just to secede to in that very sly reference to tape measure murder really made me smile. So this one, I mean, you can tell, and this is the beauty, the wonder and the beauty of this collection overall. You can tell that each author here, all 12 of them, absolutely loves Agatha Christie and Miss Marple because there's a lot of care in very different ways with very different results put into these stories. It just makes me happy. You know, like it just, it made me happy over and over and over again as I was reading them. And we were talking a little bit about this. I mean, obviously a book like this is going to suffer from purists being annoyed by its very existence, right? Well, why are you, well, you know, why do we have to create stories that Agatha Christie didn't write? If you want to write a mystery story, just write your own. And it's like, well, you know what? All 12 of these people did. (laughs) They have written their own stories and they will continue to write their own stories, but they're doing this in homage and in celebration of Agatha Christie and Miss Marple. And I am here for it, like in every single story. And for things like this, that, that wonderful little tape measure murder reference. I mean, that is just, it would have made my day if there weren't a billion other things in this book that also made my day in the, you know, three hours that it took me to read this book because I just devoured it and flew Mm -hmm. through it. So I just want to put that out there that I am a huge fan of this endeavor overall, even though it's not perfect. And even though I do completely understand that perspective of the purists. I think I have evolved as a reader and as a in terms of my perceptions of adaptation, I remember when uh, Kenneth Branagh brought out Murder on the Orient Express. For six months, I think I took part in that kind of grumble, grumble, grumble that happened on Facebook. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, I kind of enjoyed the movie a lot. Um, <laughs> and I even found things to like about Death on the Nile. There were some some choices he made that were actually quite interesting to me, particularly about Lynette, her character, things like that. And then, of course, there were things he missed. I thought your review covered that really nicely. But here, the grumbling started as soon as this was announced. I ordered the book six months in advance. I knew I was going to read it. And when I posted my review, I got some very nice comments. I also got some no thank you. So there's going to be, you know, that response, I guess. I think in a way people are missing out, though, when they look at how some really gifted authors 
have their take on a classic character. And um, there's some really good stuff here. Yeah, I mean, for me, this, the the spirit in which this book should be read is, don't you just really love Miss Marple? Do you want to just revel in that for a couple yes. of hours? Then read this. <laughs> like, that's it, exactly. you know? Exactly. And this the, the, the McDermott story is perfect proof of that. Her, her town, her people. I didn't need the mystery almost, but I, I loved it. Was, it is one of my favorites because of its voice. Exactly. Yeah. Couldn't have put it better myself, Brad. All right. Let's move on to story number three. This is Alyssa Cole, who wrote Miss Marple Takes Manhattan. So this is the first story that I'm going to put squarely into the audacity uh, box, because this is quite an audacious take on Miss Marple. If this had started the collection, this this is where you would have been thrown <laughs> headfirst into the into the Miss Marple pool. Um, my TLDR on this is the one where Miss Marple shops a lot in New York City. <laughs> but the title, I just want to talk about the title. I mean, Alyssa Cole knows what she's doing. This, of course, made me think of the Muppets take Manhattan. Oh, and, I, you know, and I thought of Jason takes Manhattan from the Friday the 13th series. Any blank takes Manhattan, she's conveying from, from the start there that sh- this is going to be playful. This is going to be playing a bit fast and loose with Miss Marple. And I really enjoyed it. This is the first one to feature Raymond West. Uh, One of Raymond West's novels is being adapted for Broadway. The novel is called Sordid and Unpleasant. That made me laugh aloud. That is so fantastic. The leading man seems to have been murdered, or at least nearly murdered. Uh, but Miss Marple ends up using her razor-sharp observational powers to deduce that it's all a ruse to sabotage the play. The mystery itself is very unusual. You know, it's this would-be murder that's not even a murder. It's not even close to a murder. It's all just, you know, this elaborate ruse, which was interesting. This is another one where I felt like not even the voice, but what Alyssa Cole was doing with the character of Miss Marple and the milieu in which she was placing her, uh, you know, going to the department stores in Midtown Manhattan. I really enjoyed it. The mystery didn't completely, I think, take off or feel like it was incorporated enough almost into the story. I didn't love this one for the mystery, but I did love it for being the first one where we saw Miss Marple in a place where we've never seen her before with lots of interesting results. How did you feel about this one, Brad? This one was more problematic to me, although I suppose it should be, uh, it should be normal for me to feel like Miss Marple is a fish out of water in Manhattan. I love the character of Junie Prince. And I feel like I would like to see Alyssa Cole write a full length mystery dealing with Junie Prince and her battles against Huac and how that leads to some kind of a murder mystery. You know, mm. if, if this was um, a full-length novel, Carl DeVoe would stand up and walk out the door, but then be found dead in an alley two hours later, and Junie would be the main suspect. Miss Marple, I don't know. I, you, you laughed at sordid and unpleasant. I always think sordid and unpleasant is the way Miss Marple sees Raymond's work, but he would never call it that himself because he has such a, he turns such a blind eye to the truth about his writing. Um, <laughs> The whole he's being ironic, Brad. He's being ironic. You just don't oh, get it. You just oh, don't he's get being it. Ironic. Oh, <laughs> there's a later Raymond in this collection who is more ironic. He's the one I know who has a sense of humor for that. But um, her shopping expedition to Gimbel's reminded me of scenes in every 50s, 60s sitcom I ever watched where yes. these ladies are battling over a tablecloth at the basement Gimbel sale. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have her do that. It was weird. And I also felt it was a kind of strange. I, I, I recognize that 
Alyssa Cole is probably right as to how Miss Marple would deal with the issues of race, but I didn't like reading it. Maybe it was something about me facing up to Miss Marple's limited capacity to understand. I felt that Raymond and Joan were treating Miss Marple like a child through the whole thing, but she does escape the hotel room and get lost and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I, I, it didn't satisfy me the way the first two did, but not because of its audacity. I thought the depiction of New York and the, that gritty New York of the 60s and 70s was great. And I love the idea of the political ramifications, how that was the underlying factor in the mystery. But I, I didn't buy this Aunt Jane so much. I think that's fair. I, I mean, I completely agree with you that the audacity of placing Ms. Marple in New York City and the scenes at Gimbel's and just, just walking around the streets of New York in general, that's the best thing about this story is the characterization, some of the best characterization of Miss Marple, of Raymond West, and even of the characters in the story. Is it the best that we're going to see in this collection? I don't think so. I think that's fair. I will say, I mean, there is a lot of talk about race in this story, and we should bring up the fact that, you know, some of the authors in this collection are people of color. And I think that that's a significant factor here in that it allows uh, these Miss Marple stories to deal with certain issues that very well may have been dealt with in Christie's own Miss Marple novels and short stories in a different way, because these authors have a different perspective than Agatha Christie did, because she, of course, was one person with her own identity and perspective. And that's really interesting. And I really appreciated that, that, you know, we were able to get those different perspectives from the creator of a Miss Marple short story in this collection. And in that will be the... I totally agree with you. I think the problem for me is how Miss Marple fits into it. But I I am personally very fascinated by the whole era of the, the blacklisting era. My mom likes to tell me frequently, maybe every day, that today is a terrible time and it was always better in the olden times. And I remind her that she had to sign a loyalty oath to go to college. So, uh, you know, there have been troubled times a lot. And this was a troubled time. And I found that whole aspect of it fascinating. The whole theater setting, all of that was great. It's just for me how Miss Marple was placed in there. And I agree. I think that, you know, you've talked so much. You and Catherine have uh, dedicated a, a whole rating to the issues that have stuck in its time and the way she dealt with people of color and of race and gender. Uh, uh, Miss Marple deals with a lot of ageist sentiments throughout this story. Mm -hmm. But I guess for me, the Marple factor, as I call it, was slightly off for me here. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's fair. I think I, I appreciate a lot of what the story is trying to do, but I think it, it probably could have been done more artfully. I will highlight one line that I really appreciated, which was this. It was all a bit morbid, but some people knew things and Miss Marple knew murder. There was no more point in being upset about it than a sparrow being sad that it knew how to build a nest. I liked that. I thought, yes, that, you know, Miss Marple is just good <laughs> at solving murders. Like that is her power. It's part of who she is. And then the other, just the other point I want to make, not in defense of this story, but that I think is to this story's credit, 
is that at the end, Miss Marple is particularly happy because she was able to solve a murder that didn't involve anyone dying. <laughs> and right. it's true. And I think Agatha Christie's Miss Marple would have felt that way because, you know, we joke on this podcast about Dark Marple and there is an element of that, which is why Catherine's Dark Marple theory is as powerful as it is and will live on forever. There's a lot of validity to it. But Miss Marble was also a person who did not like when people died and were in pain. You know, this is sort of the the Christian part of her. And um, I just love that she's so happy at the end because she was able to be smart and use her brain to solve a mystery. But no one is actually dead <laughs> at the end of the story. And, and, you know. and, and Cole is asking a question that Christy often presented herself is, can Marple do her thing outside of the village? Can she do it in the Caribbean? Can she do it in the city? Mm -hmm. and can she do it in New York? And she sure can. She sure she can. Of course she can. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. All right. Well, let's go back to the village for story number four. This would be The Unraveling by Natalie Haynes. My TLDR on this one is the one riffing on the Enoch Arden trope, which is a very Christie-ish <laughs> thing to do. Christie was obsessed with Tennyson's Enoch Arden story. It came up a lot. Of course, most famously in Taken at the Flood, but even in a few of her short stories, one of her Mary Westmacott novels as well, Giant's Bread, which is the one that I read most recently for the podcast's Patreon account. But in any case, Miss Marple uses some Mendelian genetics <laughs> here and a clue that's lifted from the Parker Pine short story, The House at Shiraz, as to eye color to deduce that a newcomer to town who's been killed after a very public argument between himself and a Mr. Weaver is, in fact, Mr. Weaver himself. Uh, the would-be Mr. Weaver took over this man's identity after the war. This would seem to be the First World War, so we are back in early Miss Marple here, and figured that the real Mr. Weaver would never return, but he did. I think this one does not fall into the audacious category. For me, it's much more on the authentic side of things. We have Miss Marple here gossiping in her village setting. For me... The solution was way too easily telegraphed. I knew right from the start where this was going, and it did not surprise me. For that reason, I think it fell a little flat for me. I think that's a warning this collection must carry to all true Christie fans, though. Um, back in the first story, um, as soon as Miss Marple and Prudence were attacked in the woods, all sorts of gears started clicking for me. That's where my suspicion started to grow, because... Christy does that so often. She creates a situation that seems to effectively knock out a suspect. Mm -hmm. When they started talking about eye color, I was like, uh-oh, and why go visit the schoolmaster right at that point? And I was like, hmm. It isn't that I got the plot because it's pretty complex, but it became very recognizable. However, I think that Natalie Haynes creates a very recognizable depiction of Miss Marple. She knows how to keep her own counsel. Even when she drops a stitch, she's very calm. And she just sort of step-by-step step pushes her friend toward an understanding of what was really going on, the way Miss Marple would do in a Christie novel. Here's my problem. If Mrs. Weaver did not recognize her husband when he returned, then we are firmly in murder in Mesopotamia territory. But I like the theory that she did recognize him and she was willing to let him go because she liked the life she created with the man she chose to accept as her returning husband. That felt to me very wartime, very much on par with the kinds of issues facing villagers at the end of the war. I liked that a lot. What I did not like 
in this was the depiction of the village. I wrote, where the heck are we? Because it did not feel like St. Mary Mead. They never call the village St. Mary Mead. It doesn't seem to be described in the way mm-hmm. St. Mary Mead usually is. Miss Marple doesn't seem to live where she usually does. She's in some house on a hill. I thought she was in a lane near the vicarage. So I was put off by the lack of connection to the canon because this felt more like an authentic story than an audacious story. And therefore, I want a little bit more flavor. And the flavor was weird. I kept wondering, who the heck is Susan Golden Gay? Where's Dolly Banshee? Where's somebody that we know? But that's her choice, obviously. I mean, I can't push that. If I push that, then I'm going the way of the purists, which is a little unpleasant to me. But the village itself, it felt like a great village. It just didn't feel like St. Mary Mead. I completely agree in that this is not going in the audacious route and it really seems to be firmly in the authenticity camp, then it needs to be a little bit more authentic than it is. Of course, it doesn't need to be anything, but but as as we're critiquing it, since that's what we're doing, I can say that I agree with you because I had a similar reaction where I was like, well, I guess we're in St. Mary Mead because it's Miss Marple and she seems to be at home in a village, but this isn't really recognizable as St. Mary Mead to me. And there would have been some easy ways to, I think, just throw in some, you know, a Mrs. Price Ridley reference or a Miss Hartnell or something. And that that is done in other stories. But, you know, this author chose not to do that. It also reminded me, I have to say, of this Jodie Foster movie, Summersby, which is a riff on the Enoch Arden situation. But it's very much the situation here that they hint at where man returns home from war says he is this woman's husband. The woman knows right from the start, that is not my husband. But she just says, okay. (laughs) And uh, in Summersby, it's Jodie Foster and Richard Gere plays her uh, would-be husband. And you know what? They fall in love. So she's in love with him even more so than she ever was with her husband because it's a movie. Um, And if Richard Gere knocked on your door and said, hello, darling. (laughs) (laughs) Especially Richard Gere in 1993, which was when the movie was made. Yes. So it goes in a direction here a much more christie-ish direction but you know again i i appreciated it and christie has done the eye color clue and that is part of the fun too is is playing the guessing game that we as mystery readers do whenever we're reading any mystery where we're in competition with the author right where it's like oh i think i see what you're doing here and let me see if i can outsmart you or maybe you've outsmarted me and there's almost an extra meta level to that because we are coming to this collection as christie readers and we know that the authors are coming to the collection as Christie readers as well. So it's not just, are you going to use any of the mystery tropes in your bag of tricks, but are you going to use any of the Christie specific mystery tropes in your bag of tricks that you have as a reader? And then maybe you have some others as a writer as well. It just makes the game all that much more fun. This episode is sponsored by The Art of Crime a brand new history podcast about the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts, which I believe is going to be very much up many listeners' alleys. Season one of the podcast is titled The Unusual Suspects, Artists Accused of Being Jack the Ripper. 
It profiles six renowned artists who have fallen under suspicion as the Whitechapel murderer. One of them is Lewis Carroll, as in, yes, that Lewis Carroll. <laughs> so that's fascinating. If you're like me, you never knew that Lewis Carroll was accused of being Jack the Ripper. You haven't even listened to an episode of this podcast yet, and already your mind is being blown here. So as you meet each artist episode by episode, you will find out who they were, uh, what it was like for them to ply their trades back in the Victorian period, and why they have been nominated as candidates for Jack the Ripper. You'll also get to ponder why artists, especially great artists, have proven so attractive as murder suspects, which brings yield actor clacks and alarm bell to mind for me. As I said, I think you're going to enjoy this podcast. It has significant overlap with All About Agatha. So subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to visit www.artofcrimepodcast.com. Story number five is by Ruth Ware, big friend of the podcast. We've had her on twice. She is just a delight to talk to. And I'm happy to report that for me, at least, her story in this collection was also a delight. It's a Christmas-themed story. It happens at Christmas. It's called Miss Marple's Christmas. The TLDR on this one is the one where the solution rests on a Dorothy Sayer short story, (laughs) which is very unusual in a collection that's an homage to Agatha Christie. This is another Raymond West addled story. It features not only Raymond and Joan West, but the Bantries and Sir Henry Clithering. It takes place at Gossington Hall. So we're in early-ish Miss Marple territory here since, you know, as we all know, by the mirror cracked, Dolly Bantry, of course, had moved out of Gossington Hall. So this is when Dolly and the Colonel are still uh, all alive and well. And we are post body in the library here. And then this is also the story that includes the trope of Miss Marple ferreting out a pregnancy. She deduces that Joan West is with child by the fact that she is not drinking her cocktails. And I love this. The reason she's not drinking her cocktails is not because she's pregnant and she doesn't want to you know, give alcohol to her baby. (laughs) It's that the cocktails are making her sick because she doesn't have the appetite for them because she's pregnant, which is just such a period specific and appropriate (laughs) thing for Ruth Ware to put in there. And, you know, we know from my interview with David Braun that two of the other authors in this collection uh, did the same thing where they had Miss Marple figuring out that someone was pregnant, but they could only keep one of them. So they kept it here in this story. And I think she did a great job on it. You know, the mystery hinges on these pearls, a pearl necklace is missing. And it turns out that the pearls have been individually taken off the necklace and put into mistletoe, just sort of pinned up into mistletoe so that they're hiding in plain sight. And that is a trick that Dorothy Sayers used in the short story, The Necklace of Pearls in the collection Hangman's Holiday. And uh, Ruth Ware plays very fair with that because it's noted that Dorothy Sayers is being read. <laughs> the fact that this is a Dorothy Sayers solution is very much called out at the end of the story. But I did think that that was an interesting choice. I'm not a Sayers fan. If your podcast had been called uh, Dishing with Dorothy, I'd not be here. <laughs> uh, it would have been called Friends of Dorothy, obviously. Friends of Dorothy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Then I would have been here. You, you totally, read, you would have I at least listened read, to the first episode. Come on. <laughs> I would have listened and I would have read the first book. Absolutely. <laughs> I think Ruth Ware is doing the same thing Val McDermott did by creating this fantastic 
just homage to classic Christie. I felt so at home at Gossington Hall. Uh, the Banshees are two of my favorite characters. Uh, 13 Problems is my favorite collection. What a wonderful, wonderful introduction to Miss Marple and to all her friends. And the idea that both Miss Marple and the Banshees have unwelcome Christmas guests is a <laughs> funny one. I didn't buy the Dashwoods at all, uh, despite their glorious name. I thought, these are bad people, and I don't know how Colonel Bantry got stuck with them. But the tone of it is fantastic. I think the problem for me is it harkens back in terms of its mystery, not to Hercule Poirot's Christmas, but to the mystery of the Christmas pudding, which I know you like, but it has always disappointed me. I always feel like I get through that whole dinner and then there's not much of a mystery there. Mm. I sat and had dinner with the Bantries, Miss Marple and their guests for hours. I didn't need the mystery. But boy, does she do a great job with the characters and the village parallels are good. The tone of it is good. It just feels like a wonderfully warm, rich, Christy type story. Well, I mean, the fact that you liked it as much as The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding, I think, speaks pretty highly to it. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It does. I love that that Christmas story is basically put into the middle as well. I think it's a nice anchor, actually, for the middle. We have some good, authentic stories anchoring the opening. And then for me, this was the one that, you know, was really just like sitting right in the center. And I, I love a Christmas murder. So I'm so happy that Ruth Ware did that story for the collection. All right. Number six, our sixth story here in the collection is Naomi Alderman's The Open Mind. TLDR, this is the one set in Academia. <laughs> <laughs> it involves a very unusual motive. The motive has to do with the furthering of a pet academic theory. That academic theory being that uh, Oliver Cromwell actually wanted to restore the British monarchy. <laughs> it's, it's a very bonkers motive, but an inventive one. And I think the way that the murderer goes about promoting her theory is also very interesting. She essentially kills someone because that means that this crypt is going to be left open and that she can plant some papers in a crypt that will promote her pet theory. That really is the solution here. And that sounds insane. But by the end of the story, I think that Naomi Alderman comes pretty close to selling it. I don't know if she gets all the way there. How did you feel about this one, Brad? I don't know. There are things I love. I love the opening. I love that she's hanging out with her friend, the judge, Sir Aaron Kahn. I kind of wish we'd been reading the case of the Quaverly Choir murders that she solved while visiting her friend, Ruth. I wonder <laughs> if that was Ruth Van Rydock. And I just would love to think that that was a wonderful case. Mm -hmm. I like seeing her in this setting, but I'm not a prude in any way, shape or form. But when uh, she's talking about quaaludes and, you know, how they pop some quaaludes to have sex. I went to Berkeley in the 70s. My observation of people on quaaludes was that they were basically zonked out completely. Yeah. But I don't know. There, there was something about it that was a little odd. I, I thought Miss Marple was great. I loved her use of village parallels. I thought she was quite charming. I thought the setting itself was well rendered, and I do love an academic mystery. And the ending was kind of clever. You know, the murderer is like, I don't care if I killed him. I found these papers, but that was all part of a, a trick. So that was a nice twist at the very, very end. I, I agree with you. I mean, I like the academic setting because Christie very famously never did set 
one of her novels in a university. We, of course, have Cat Among the Pigeons, but that's a secondary school sort of situation, very different. She never attended university herself. And it's unusual, actually, because I think most of the Golden Age authors went there at some point, or at least a lot of them did in a notable way. Dorothy Sayers, <laughs> since we, I, I just have her on the brain from the last story, she she certainly did. I liked that this author chose to go there since we haven't seen, you know, a Christie set in an academic setting. It seemed like a good place to go if you're going to do this sort of exercise of coming up with a new Miss Marple story. I also found a big hole, I think, in the mystery itself, which is that the trick here is we know that the murderer and her victim were popping quaaludes, as you say, but it turns out that she gave her victim a lot of quaaludes, you know, said he had a pill, but in fact, she gave him like three or four pills. Well, wouldn't the concentration of drugs show up on a toxicology report? Like you would know if he had actually been given or taken three quaaludes as opposed to one or 10 quaaludes as opposed to one, whatever it was, it was treated as though, oh, well, that's undetectable. She just very cleverly, since we knew that he was taking some quaaludes, she just gave him a whole bunch more. And it's like, well, that's detectable, right? I would imagine so. I can't imagine anybody being able to stand up and come back into the luncheon having taken four or five quaaludes. It's a little vague as to whether she took a bunch but had it enough in her system that she was used to it, which makes no sense, or if she had actually palmed them in her yeah. mouth and then spit them out. I don't know how that happened. It's a little, it's a little iffy. Yeah. I mean, you know, this one definitely belongs in the uh, audacity box, different setting. And I think especially as to the means of murder with the quaaludes and the casual sex, that's something that we are not used to seeing in a Christie story. But I'm not sure that um, it was pulled off entirely successfully. But I will say this, you know, there are 12 stories, 12 novels. And for, I would say, 11 of them, Miss Marple does her thing. She solves the mystery and then she goes back to her life. And there's a little bit of, you know, there's a little community that knows what she can do. But for the most part, she just lives her life. It isn't till Nemesis, and you talked about this a lot when you discussed that novel, that she really gets rewarded on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. that, that Mr. Raphael has promoted her so much and the lawyers see what she's done, that she gets the money, she gets a sense of accomplishment and a larger community understands what she can do. And in a sense that happens here. It's a kind of a perfect late marble for that reason. The judge knows what she can do. He brings her into this community. And at the end, they invite her basically to come have lunch with them anytime, which I think is, is you know, this is a sign of late marble. And that was a nice touch to me. Totally agree. Yeah, this is very much late Marple. I believe the story is set explicitly in 1970. So we we know that this is late Marple indeed. And the other point I just want to make in the story's favor is that it does deal with anti-Semitism. And given that anti-Semitism is something that crops up in Christie probably <laughs> more than any of the other depictions stuck in their time that we dealt with when we were reviewing the novels on the podcast, I appreciated the different perspective this author was able to provide in this story when it comes to those sorts of issues. And I'm glad that the issue of anti-Semitism was dealt with explicitly in one of these stories. I quite appreciated that. And as a Jewish man myself, who has always been disturbed every time I run up against anti-Semitism in her work, I really appreciated this version of Miss Marple hanging out with Sir Aaron Kahn. 
totally. Uh, yeah. yeah. That was nice. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, story number seven, which would be Jean Quark's The Jade Empress. TLDR on this one is that this is the one where Miss Marple is on a cruise to Hong Kong. <laughs> Love it. I also just, I think I might've like started clapping as I started this one because I will put this in the in the audacious category, but it also feels so right because we saw Miss Marple traveling in, you know, a Caribbean mystery. And I I loved the setting of this one. I love her on the cruise ship. I love that they're going to Hong Kong. And this is another one where, you know, Gene Kwok is able to populate this short story with Asian characters and to do so with an authenticity that Christy herself was never able to do because Jean Kwok is herself Asian. And I really appreciated that as well. And she even incorporates some cultural information into the solving of the mystery, actually. And and it's just, it's there. It's it's not just sprinkled in. It's really an important part of the story, this cultural know-how as to the Asian characters. And um, I really, really appreciated that. I love this story. Uh, it's very much an alternate version of a Caribbean mystery. I mean, Mr. Pang is this kindly friend who sees something over Miss Marple's shoulder that mm-hmm. he couldn't have seen. I wrote uh, in line with what you just said, it feels very much like Christian that there's minimal description that still has its effect, but the cultural references are far richer and more interesting than anything in a Caribbean mystery. And this is where I believe a modern author can do things that Christie chose not to do. She did not have that kind of universal perceptiveness when she wrote a Caribbean mystery. Quack can insert that. And it's just, it makes the story so much richer. I loved the characters. I loved how she inserted all the superstition and all the cultural references in a way, and then created a very Christie-like solution. I said it's a a lot like uh, Sad Cypress, in which um, a long-lost relative inserts themselves in disguise and, and wreaks havoc. So I did. I enjoyed the story very much. I did too. I, there was one clue here that I thought was so clever and Christie-ish and specifically Marple-ish. It's one of my favorite clues in the whole collection. It's a horticultural one. And it has to do with this brooch, which depicts a peony. And, and earlier in the story, it seems as though the first victim is referencing an actual peony flower. But Miss Marple realizes that it must have been a representation of a peony. It must have been the brooch because, and now I'm quoting, it is impossible for a peony to bloom in the tropics. They need a hard winter. <laughs> it's like, that's so something that Miss Marple would have known, but really clever. That's a really clever clue. I was, though, a little befuddled by this one reference that Miss Marple made to a previous case. Although I think that Quack was was kind of hedging her bets when she made the reference. So so perhaps this isn't a previous case of Miss Marple's per se. I'm just curious if you bumped on this, Brad. She said, I was reminded of an incident I had heard of in which a woman disguised as a chambermaid had committed a murder, yet no one noticed her because all they saw was the uniform rather than the person inside. Well, that is a very Christie-ish trope, right? And we've certainly seen that in... Agatha Christie novels. So at first I was like, oh, it's the case of the perfect maid, but it's not because the case of the perfect maid is not a murder mystery. The case of the perfect maid just has to do with theft, not right. murder. So uh, this is, is a, this an actual uh, Miss Marple short this story a, or novel? This is a Chestertonian trope. Uh, some of my friends who write other blogs hate 
this trope. Catherine always said, you know, never underestimate the staff. Chesterton said, no one's going to pay attention to the staff. There are a couple of Poirots uh, that certainly hinge on people overlooking someone who's in the uniform of a servant, even if they're not actually <laughs> servants. Some right. uh, Poirots in the 30s, two of them Absolutely. I can think of offhand. Can, We're thinking of the same ones. I won't name them because I don't want to spoil, but they're not Miss Marples. No, I can't think of a Marple. Of course, your listeners will come up with 20, but I can't think of a Marple that uses this trick. Yeah, um, I don't think so either. Because And there is also the, you know, in the 13 Problems, there's the Jane Hellier case, which does hinge on a maid's costume in a certain way. But again, there's no murder in that one. So right. interesting that, you know, it's fine. I mean, you can make a reference to a case that doesn't actually exist within the Christie verse. But for the most part, you know, the references here to other cases really do exist within the Christie verse. And they are short stories or novels that Christie wrote. So I thought that was curious that that was um, yeah. seems to be a reference to something that uh, we have never read before. But I really I mean, how could I not enjoy Miss Marple eating dim sum? Like I just I, uh, or I loved doing, or, or doing Tai Chi in the park. Yeah. I mean, this is one I'll say in a way, it's not the inverse of it, but I, I would actually just like to contrast it to the Val McDermott story because I don't think that Gene Kwok's voice here, the authorial voice in any way was similar to anything that Christie has done. It very much feels like, okay, this is a story by another author, but the cluing, the references, and just the setting overall were delightful enough that I really enjoyed the heck out of it. But on a sentence-by-sentence level, this didn't feel like Christie to me. It felt like something very, very different. It, it might be the most different, the most divorced from Christie of any of these stories. But I, even with that, I still really enjoyed it. Absolutely agree with you. Give me a B. Give me an R. Give me an I. Okay, you know where this is going. B-R-I-T-B-O-X. Britbox is the best, best, best. And it really is, because there are so many high-quality mysteries to delight in over at Birdbox. I've already swooned over Brenda Blethin as Vera and Lauren Lyle as Karen Peary, and I actually just caught up on The Fall over at Birdbox. That has been around for a while, so I'm a little late to the party on this Gillian Anderson, Jamie Dornan masterpiece. But that's the great thing about Birdbox. You can find hot new shows, older ones you might have missed but have always been meaning to watch, and then your beloved old standbys that you watch over and over and over again. <clears throat> Poirot, Marple. It's all available to you at www.brickbox.com. And if you're listening to this in the US or Canada, get 50% off the first month of your monthly subscription when you use coupon code Agatha. So get to it. Vera and Karen are waiting. And Stella. And Jane. And Hercule. And many, many, many more. All right, let's move on to story number eight. That would be Drita Say Mitchell's A Deadly Wedding Day. Uh, this is the one at a wedding reception with a big old tie-in to a Caribbean mystery. That's my TLDR. I actually liked a lot about this. This, too, does not read 
like Agatha Christie. This is um, very much feels like, okay, this is a story that is written by another author. They have their own cadences. Some of the Miss Marple dialogue in particular, I was like, oh boy, that does not sound like the Miss Marple that I know. However, I appreciated the mystery because the would-be murderer ended up inadvertently killing herself. I thought that was very clever. And I love all the tie-ins to a Caribbean mystery because I think this is another case where Drada Say Mitchell is a woman of color. And I think that she was able to populate her story with characters of color. And almost in some ways, I don't want to say right the wrongs of what Christy did in a Caribbean mystery, but do something very different from what Christy was doing with those fairly tangential characters in a Caribbean mystery. And it felt constructive and celebratory and additive to a Caribbean mystery. And I, and I so loved the spirit of that. Well, there are two or three mysteries in here where I feel that Miss Marple is a, a tiny bit superfluous. I would like to read stories about Miss Bella Baptiste. She's a wonderful yes. character. Uh, it's an interesting experience to watch Miss Marple teaming up with someone. Mm. One of the things Mitchell does so well is show how limiting it is for Miss Bella to be in England. She has to go hang out with the servants and interview them while Miss Marple bursts in on the aristocracy. So there were some lovely, subtle ways of showing racial differences. I thought it was intriguing that the family is really upset that their son is marrying a Black woman until they find out that she's a rich Black woman. Uh, it doesn't say much for colonial England, but then Christie herself didn't have a lot of patience for colonialists in England, even though she was sometimes one herself. I just thought... Miss Marple is kind of crowded out a little bit here, and that's okay. It is a Miss Marple collection, but she can share the, the space. I love what they did with Bishop Ambrose. He's the real villain here, even though there is mm-hmm. a different killer slash suicide, whatever. But yeah. Bishop Ambrose is a monster, and I love how he's kind of exposed that way. So there were some really good things here. And of course, anything that talks about a Caribbean mystery, which was my first Miss Marple novel and one of my favorites is good by me. I just wish we'd met Miss Bella in the actual novel. <laughs> I do too. Well, you know what's so funny, Brad? I actually, when I finished the story, I was like, was Miss Bella in the novel? <laughs> like, I, was, <laughs> I was so, I, I, I think she was very convincing with that character. And I think that is that is a really fair statement that Miss Marple is crowded out of this story. She is. Well, and also, um, in, a, in a way, it doesn't do any favors to Christy because I think you also pointed this out when you discussed a Caribbean mystery. There's some stuck-in-its-time stuff there. The depiction of the, the Native people is not good. No. And this kind of calls to mind that the Miss Marple in Mitchell's story went out and befriended this wonderful woman, hung out with her, became close enough to her that she's invited to her niece's wedding. The Miss Marple we met, you know, didn't do that. Yeah, and, no, I mean, this is this is an, an oblique or maybe not even so oblique critique of a Caribbean mystery, but in such a constructive spirit. And I love that. I think if you've read a Caribbean mystery and then you read the story, you know exactly what she's doing here and what she's saying about those depictions in a Caribbean Absolutely. mystery. It's it's a really brilliant commentary on that. Is the characterization of Miss Marple and even the mystery overall, you know, are either of those things the best of their type that we're going to come across in this collection? Uh, not for me, but I really did appreciate a lot about this story. Except um, I didn't like Miss Marple dissing the Beatles. 
she goes up to Bishop Ambrose. She said, didn't you talk about those four Liverpool musicians? And she's got the wrong band. It's the Rolling Stones that he was preaching against. Right. I thought that was kind of fun. I thought that was fun. And, you know, Christy mentioned the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I mean, you know, blink and you miss it, those mentions, but they are there in later Christy. So, yes, yes, true. All right, so up next, we have our ninth offering. That would be Murder at the Villa Rosa by Ellie Griffiths. This is the one that's thematically about Poirot and tonally a Quinn slash Satterthwaite story. (laughs) That's my take on this. I Okay, so this one for me is the gold standard in the audacity category. I think this one is crazy pants, but I kind of love what Ellie Griffiths did with this story. There is no murder in this story. There is not even the threat of a real murder. This story is all about a male author who is fed up with his fictional creation and who is determined to kill him off. Is this sounding familiar? But by the story's end, he decides not to kill off his fictional creation. You know, that is all very much in keeping with the apocryphal stories we have of Christie wanting to kill off Poirot. It reminded me of uh, Murder by the Book, starring Peggy Ashcroft and Ian Holm, which I've talked about before on this podcast. It's a great little TV film from the 80s. And it also reminded me of the mysterious Mr. Quinn short story, The World's End. I found it very unusual and arresting. It had a dreamy, gauzy sort of quality to it, which is also in keeping with Christie because she did like to write that way sometimes. And it really sticks out in this collection, but in a good way, because uh, Ellie Griffiths just chose to go in a really different direction. And I was very surprised by it when I came to it. This may be one of my, I think, two favorite stories in the collection. It's everything you say it is. Uh, What I did when I was making my notes, I didn't want to write out a whole plot description. So I would write down victim killer motive. And here I wrote, the victim is Ricky Barber, a fictional detective. The killer is his creator, Felix Jeffries, and the motive is boredom. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it reminds me a lot of Ariadne Oliver, Mm. a male version of Mrs. Oliver, who is maybe my favorite character in all of Christie. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote that so many of us who are writers at heart or would-be novelists dream of people rooting for us to write and inspiring us with stories. And there's something so lovely about what his publisher did for Felix, that she created the situation to spur him on to creativity. And that what Miss Marple has to do basically is kind of help him deduce what's going on, but she doesn't have to solve a murder. The stories everyone told, I found this an incredibly meta story and I love meta as well. Yeah. Uh, I love Miss Marple here. She says such funny things. The one I wrote, Vesuvius is not so very far away. I often think about those poor people in Pompeii, such an untidy ending. <laughs> <laughs> I love him helping her down the stairs onto the beach. I love sexy Lady Braithwaite. Everybody has a tale that might inspire him to write a new mystery. Mm-hmm. I love at the end that she's that Miss Marple says, maybe don't kill Ricky off yet. Let him stew there. And I bet you, I bet you people said that to Christy. I bet Christy said that to herself when she was sick and tired of everyone coming up to her and saying, Hercule Poirot is my friend. She had to step back and go, write it about Tommy and Tuppence next and see how you feel later. Yeah, yeah. 
No, I mean, this one is about creativity. I just absolutely love that Ellie Griffiths chose to do that. Never forget, by the way, Daniel Clancy from Death in the Clouds, the rare male mystery writer who Christie created. Also, he's, he's almost like a... I mean, I know she had already created Ariadne Oliver, but but he he's a little bit of like a proto <laughs> uh, Ariadne for the direction she'd go in with Ariadne Oliver. And that's much more jokey, of course, than, than what Ellie Griffiths is doing here. But yeah, I really love this one too, actually, even though, you know, there's nothing to speak about in terms of mystery construction and clues, and it's just not that kind of a story. But this is in the vein of those Mr. Quinn stories, which some of which do, of course, have have mysteries and, and even traditional puzzle mysteries. But for all of its audacity, it actually also does feel authentic to Christie for all of the reasons that that you were just enumerating, Brad. And I and I can feel the Christie love in this story um, so deeply from Ellie Griffiths, and and I, I really cherish this story as well. Just a, a few more specific points about this one. It was very interesting to have a, a first-person perspective of an author like this, which was um, very different from, obviously, what Christie does with Ariadne Oliver. It almost gave it a little bit of a noir feel, but not. like it, it almost felt like it was it was playing around with that subgenre as well in the best of ways. But this one quote I thought was so good. This is our first-person author uh, speaking to Miss Marple. They're talking about writing, <laughs> writing mysteries. And he says, maybe it's easy if you have a killer hook. And this is Miss Marple's response. I suspect there's no such thing. Perhaps it's lots of little hooks, like crochet. When you put them together, it's a complete tapestry. <laughs> uh, and what a great commentary on writing a mystery and and to, uh, just be able to make that analogy with crochet hooks. Like, why didn't I ever think of that? That's so good. This is a really well-written story. And I'm not talking about whether or not she's aping the voice of Christy. I just, it's it's a really beautifully written story. And it made me actually want to read Ellie Griffiths. <laughs> I haven't really read her before and I'm I'm very interested in her. We have got to stop thinking each other's thoughts and speaking them out loud because that's what I was going to say. I, I know that these 12 writers wrote their stories because they love Agatha Christie and Miss Marple. But this is a story where I wanted to start from the beginning with Ellie Griffiths. She's got two great series, and I just wanted to start devouring her work because it's beautifully written, and you can tell that she's got this great voice. So, yeah, I agree with you. All right. Well, that was offering number nine. Let's move on to story number 10. That is The Murdering Sort by Karen M. McManus. This is the one that places Miss Marple in a YA story, <laughs> YA being young adults. Uh, this is very much a young adult spin on Miss Marple, in which her American great grandniece narrates a murder mystery in which a young murderer kills her own grandfather over issues surrounding, wait for it, land conservation. This is probably the most modern of the stories. And the reason why it's so recognizably young adult is that it is written in the first person present tense, oh. which is so odd to read a Miss Marple short story in first person present tense. I was so weirded out by it when I started reading the story. But spoiler, Brad, I actually really liked this story. This also falls into the audacity category for me. This story takes place in Chatham, Massachusetts. And the narrator is related to Miss Marple through Raymond West. She is the daughter of David, who is Raymond's son, who was mentioned in 450 from Paddington as being a train aficionado. <laughs> so there's a canon reference there. Cherry Jones 
makes an appearance. This is a super old version of Miss Marple. I mean, she would have to be super old because it basically feels like this is present day. It feels almost like a contemporary short story, even though it's not. And, uh, you know, I thought there were shades of peril at End House in that we have this older man, Josiah Westover, who has many brushes with death, and he ends up being our victim. Perhaps that goes in a different direction from Peril at End House, but it did make me think of that novel when we started out. You could also say Josiah Westover is very Simeon Lee from Hercule Poirot's Christmas. There's a great Easter egg having to do with, again, 450 from Paddington. The Massachusetts policeman ends up soliciting Miss Marple's opinion because she knows Dermot Craddock. I appreciated that reference to Inspector Craddock. Uh, The puzzle is a bit thin. I think the mystery here really hinges on one trick. But I liked the fact that land conservation was the motive. I just really enjoyed the story after that first page when I settled into the YA voice and feel of the story. I had a good time. I think if you try and picture Greta Thunberg speaking out so passionately about (laughs) global warming and then deciding to murder people for, you know, not listening to her. You can kind of buy what's going on here. I thought it was a little extreme. Um, What's interesting is that the basic mystery itself, the idea of, you know, I am a very wealthy man, so what I'm going to do is invite you in one at a time to my study so that one of you can kill, I mean, I can talk to you, is, you know, old-fashioned enough. It's done millions of times in the 20s and 30s. Um, so that mix of the the classic and the modern is there. I've been reading young adult fiction all my life. I've always loved it, not just because I was a teacher, because I like to um, recommend books to kids, but I just think a lot of young adult fiction is so rich in plotting, a lot like Agatha Christie, who mm-hmm. I started reading when I was 10. There's a lot of emphasis on good plots and things like that. And modern young adult fiction deals with character quite a bit. I do think that a lot of YA mysteries tend to rely on a big twist at the end without earning it. So this went there. I didn't feel like the twist was necessarily earned, but I did feel as soon as Nicola was approached by Diana at school saying, we're going to be best friends. I got a whole vibe that suggested Diana was not as wonderful as she seemed to be. My biggest problem with it was Miss Marple, who, again, here, she seems more like Aunt Gertrude in the Hardy Boys series. <laughs> uh, she's very prudish. She's like, oh, don't talk about murder. <laughs> she just seems sort of icky. Um, and at one point, and I, I wrote this, I know this will turn out to be the most unfortunate typo in the whole book, but Miss Marple calls her home St. Mary's Mead mm. at the beginning. She calls it St. Mary Mead at the end, and I'm thinking somebody made a mistake here. It was either this version of Miss Marple or some unlucky editor, but um, St. Mary's Mead would turn any decent Christie fan into the murdering sort. Yeah, that's definitely a very unfortunate typo. I think Miss Marple is a little beside the point in this story as well. For whatever reason, I just, I think that this is another one where I loved that we were seeing her in such a contemporary setting that had such contemporary preoccupations. It's the one where it almost feels like Miss Marple is time traveling. You know, there were, there was a few very simple rules. Um, David Braun talked about this when I interviewed him that they gave to all the authors, which was basically 
that you had to set Miss Marple within the time frame in which she existed as Christie wrote her. So essentially the mid to late 1920s to the early 1970s. And this story could, of course, be in the early 1970s, but it doesn't feel like it is. It feels... No, it, it doesn't. Right? It feels like we are in 2021 or 2022. I know I should be annoyed by that, but I actually loved that. I don't, I don't know. I, I was just sort of... I was gleeful about this story because it's taking such liberties. So I guess by this point, you know, I'm on story 10 of 12. I was just like, to hell with the rules. Let's just Miss Marple in space. Let's just do it, you know? And I think this one was embracing a little bit of that devil may care spirit. But yeah, I'm not surprised that this isn't for everyone. And just anecdotally, as I've been talking to people about the collection, I know this is one that raised a lot of eyebrows for readers. I think the present tense is a mistake. It does make me feel like we're in 2022. That makes Miss Marple around 160. And I, I had a hard time accepting the rules of literature. I felt this woman should just be a crumbling mass of dust with a, a lace fichu draped over her corpse. <laughs> a little voice going, don't go out too late. Yeah. But in the same way that, you know, Ellie Griffiths chose to do a first person narration by an author, you know, which was also a departure. It's just, this is very alien to what Christie did, but that's part of the fun. But I, I understand this one. Well, and, I, and let me just say, I mean, let's give credit to Karen McManus, who is one of those YA authors who embraces the genre and introduces the genre to teenagers all over the world. She has a series of books that kids devour. I believe they've been turned into a TV series. Um, I did read the first one, which was an interesting case where everyone's locked in detention. It was kind of a breakfast club meets Agatha Christie. And so uh, I, I'm glad they included a YA author here. They actually included two, that they would do that and, and acknowledge the importance of these writers for um, a mystery reading audience. If I ever write a book, it'll probably be a YA mystery. So. Right, right. No, which is such a robust subgenre and an important one because mystery is the way in for a lot of young readers and it, it yes. fosters a love of reading. And and Christy has, I mean, Christy hated when people called her a YA author. They didn't say YA back then. She's not. She's an, she's an author for adults who, who children happen to be able to read and enjoy and use early on, I think, to hone their reading skills. But YA mystery is such an important genre. And yeah, Karen McManus is good at it. And, you know, I did appreciate that the solution hinges, pun intended, on a flip cap versus a, a twist off cap for um, a bottle, a bottle of pills. That was clever. All right, let's move on to our second to last offering here. Story number 11 of 12. That would be Kate Moss's The Mystery of the Acid Soil. This is the one that involves a woman trapped inside a house. <laughs> I thought that this one felt very authentic. You could tell that Kate Moss is not only a fan of Agatha Christie and Miss Marple specifically, but that she did her research as she was writing this very story. There are a lot of really specific references to things that Miss Marple owns or that she does. Uh, for example, we have in the thumb mark of St. Peter, Miss Marple putting her maid on board wages and sending her plate in King Charles tankard to the bank for safekeeping. And that is directly referenced in this story. It's just a little throwaway reference from the thumb mark of St. Peter, but she uses that to fill out the characterization of Miss Marple in a really authentic way. Uh, Miss Marple 
Marple is bringing both Damson Gin and Cherry Brandy <laughs> <laughs> on her visit here. We know that Miss Marvel is all about the homemade spirits. Kate Moss just really, really did her research. Um, also, the Fraulein's Boots reference, which is lifted from They Do It With Mirrors. She's just really incorporating, I think, all of these finer details of Miss Marple from the texts. And um, I loved that. The story itself, the mystery, you know, this is another one where to me it felt a little not beside the point, but perhaps tacked on at the end, similar to Val McDermott. Uh, in a lot of ways, it actually was a very similar experience to Val McDermott's story because I think the writing is authentic and true to Agatha Christie and very masterfully done, but the mystery construction itself does not seem to be the focal point of the story. I think you could say that about both these stories, both of which are two of my favorites from the collection, actually. Um, if the Ellie Griffith story is my favorite audacious tale, this is my favorite authentic one. Hmm. I think that the mystery is not a puzzle mystery, but it reminds us how much Agatha Christie loved Arthur Conan Doyle. It feels very much like a Doyle tale, a Sherlock Holmes story. Hmm. Um, I feel like the stepfather is like Grimsby Roylott, and this poor girl is stuck with the snake in the upper bedroom. But the village itself, and and Miss Marple herself, she talks like Christie had her talk. I wrote a lot of quotes here, but the, this one that Miss Marple says, when three unusual events happen in close succession, one has to wonder. And the daily being let go, that is very suggestive. The fact that two people die, but it's the fact that the servant has been let go that clues her in that something is terribly wrong mm -hmm. is so Miss Marple to me. Mm -hmm. um, I loved what you mentioned about, you know, what Miss Marple does to prepare for going on a trip. I love Moss's description. It's a beautifully written story. Yeah. Um, her description of post-war England, were it not for the shadows of bombed out buildings or notices in shop windows apologizing for shortages, it might have been as if the past eight years had never happened. We look at those post-war marples with everyone trying to get back to normal and discovering in very subtle ways that they can't. I loved Emmeline Stricker. She struck me as the best made-up friend in the whole collection. Yes. I love yes. the two of them sitting in the backyard getting a little snockered on Damson Gin. All of that. It, it, you're right. It, like the McDermott story, the mystery almost doesn't matter, although I do think it's a better mystery than Val McDermott put together. It doesn't feel as tapped on. It doesn't feel like a Christie mystery so much as more of a 20s thriller mystery or a, earlier than that. Or almost like you said, a Sherlock Holmes, a mystery, right? Because those Sherlock, so many of those Sherlock Holmeses really are just thrillers disguised as mysteries. And the mysteries are, they certainly don't function as puzzle mysteries. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that's a really good point. And I, I do love comparing, I think, Emmeline to Prudence from Lu yeah. the, the Lucy Foley story. I, it's very easy, I think, to compare those two. And, and I think this is the better made up friend. This feels like the Miss Marple from the Agatha Christie Ofra. I think probably more so than any of the other stories in this collection. Like it feels like the quote unquote real Miss Marple. Like this to me might be the gold standard as to authenticity. 
I wish it wasn't titled The Mystery of the Acid Soil. That's sort of like saying the mystery of the one where the narrator did it, you know? <laughs> like, it's just like a little too much of a giveaway, although it's so fitting that her love of gardening would be what gives Miss Marple the clue to what's going on. We have another horticultural clue. Well, it's that is that is audacious in a Christie-ish. It's audacious in an authentic way <laughs> because I think yeah, Christie right. often was quite audacious with her titles. We mentioned Tape Measure Murder. Right. Uh, which is a uh, Miss Marple short story. That is a that is a title that has given something away. I think she did sometimes like to give a little bit of a clue. Perhaps this one's going a bit too far. But hey, I didn't. I mean, I read titles and then when I start the story, I almost always forget what the title is as I'm reading right. it. So that didn't bother me. But yeah, it's a, it's a curious title for this one. Let me just give Kate Moss credit for the most and the best Easter eggs. I mean, Raymond and Joan West are living in London with their sons, and Miss Marple goes to stay at Bertram's Hotel to visit them. Emmy and Miss Marple went to the same Italian pension as Carrie Louise and Ruth. Mr. Cooper, the villain, reminds Miss Marple of Mr. Sanders in A Christmas Tragedy from The 13 Problems. And the, the daughter of the taxi driver suffered from German measles and was misdiagnosed, which caused the beginning of the downfall of the town doctor. So there's so much Marple history in this little story. It's just, I love this one. It is steeped in Marple history. I was just about to make the point about a Christmas tragedy. Yeah. Brad, you stole my thunder. I'm sorry. We are no. we're we're like brothers stealing. <laughs> it's truly steeped in Christie's Marple. And I think more than any of the other stories, you can tell that a lot of care and time was put into all of them. But as to research, this is the the standout where you're just like, okay, wow, like you 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 set about to incorporate as much of Agatha Christie's marble into this character that you were creating as you could, and it shows. And that's a beautiful thing. So we have our final story here, number 12 of 12. This would be Lee Bardugo's The Disappearance. And I started out my little TLDR descriptions with Lucy Foley's where I said, the one where Miss Marple's friend did it. Well, this one is the one where Miss <laughs> Marple's friend Dolly Bantry did it. Which I kind of like that. It's like that's sort of, you know, the progression here in this collection. We're starting there and now we're like, oh my God, this is a very, very audacious way to end the collection. I don't know if I love actually leaving the collection on this note. I don't know if I would have chosen for this story to be the last one because this is a choice <laughs> to make Dolly Bantry a murderer. I do think that Lee Bardugo does it in about as convincing a way as one could to boil the story down to Dolly Bantry did it makes it sound as though it must be a terrible story. And it's not. I actually think that this Miss Marple and this Dolly Bantry are also recognizable. I don't know, though, if I was ultimately convinced by where it went in the end. It didn't completely sing for me, but I, I certainly didn't think it was a disaster. How did you feel about this one? I really enjoyed the story. Again, I love Dolly Bantry. Um, I think this is the best Raymond West in the whole collection. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. I almost wish that he had just, they, she had just hung out in London at their apartment and talked because 
that was a wonderful opening. Okay, um, can I wait, Brad? Could I just read out before you do? Can I read out my um? This is the I think the do it. you got your turn. Your turn. Yeah, this is the most fun that Lee Bardugo has at Raymond West's expense, and you know that I love having fun at Raymond West's expense. Right. So this is a conversation between Miss Marple and Raymond, and when Miss Marple is on the phone with uh, Dolly Bantry, and she's urging her to leave and come back to St. Mary Mead. I'll be home at the end of August, Miss Marple protested. Raymond and his wife are taking me to a most intriguing play next week. Very controversial. Quite right, said Raymond, lighting a cigarette and leaning against the mantel. The actors perform in nothing but red paint. Impossible to get tickets, even in summer. Miss Marple suppressed a shudder. <laughs> and we had in Sleeping Murder, you know, when when Raymond West was dragging poor Miss Marple to these avant-garde theater productions. And she was like, oh, boy, another one of these. You know, this is very much in keeping with the Raymond West and the Miss Marple who we know and love. Right. There are many things I love about this. In a way, it's a nice merging of the authentic and the audacious. I love that at this point, Dolly's living in the gatehouse but mm-hmm. the new tenants, after the unfortunate scandal before, have renovated Gossington Hall back to its original glory. Yes. So we're, we're getting a little bit of that body in the library vibe there. The mystery itself, the victim is interesting because he turns out to be such a horrible creep. And that whole thing felt very modern to me as we're looking at the Me Too world and we're starting to acknowledge that good-looking guys can be jerks and they can be worse than that. And he is. So he deserves what he gets. But at the same time, I didn't have a problem buying Dolly Mantry as a killer. What I had a problem with was Miss Marple saying, it's unfortunate that men hold so much power in this world, but you know, Dolly, it's not really strength that's necessary to survive. It's cleverness. So let's go on a trip and we'll pretend that we meet him on this faraway trip and you'll get away with murder thanks to me. That is not Miss Marple. Miss Marple would push the button for any gallows. You know, she's she's the arbiter of justice. And I don't think she would let Dolly Bentry hang, but she seems so casual about it. That was odd to me. I completely agree with you. That is the issue. The issue is not that Dolly Bantry is the murderer. And, and, and you know, the funny thing, we as we've been talking about these stories, often our critique has been, well, the mystery might have felt like it was beside the point or tacked on or a little too thin. The mystery here is quite good. And it's quite thoroughly solved. And the murderer himself is a really good character. And he is, he's rendered, I think, very, very finely in the story. And he's pretty hideous. I remembered this mystery very well when I was reviewing these stories last night in, in, in preparation for this conversation. So the mystery is quite good. And it's actually convincing that Dolly Bantry did it. I even find it convincing that Dolly Bantry could be brought to murder, given who she, who she is in actual of the Christie's text, but the way that Miss Marple responds to it and the final pages of this story, which are then the final pages of the collection, in which exactly as you said, Miss Marple just says, eh, let's just, you know, go on a trip and I'll let you get away scot-free. No, Miss Marple would say, well, I'm sorry, Dolly, you're a friend of mine, but you know what? I got to call up the police now and you're going to have, you're going to go to jail. Like that, that, that is what she would do. That is what she would do. She would not blink because she's Miss Marple. Poirot is different, but that's part of the point, right? That Miss Marple is Miss Marple and Poirot is Poirot and they're very different people. And it felt like a false note. 
to end the collection. And I didn't like that choice, even though there's a lot to love about this story. I won't say that I disliked the story overall. I didn't, but I thought that that final note was unfortunate and not earned. It would have bothered me less if this story were not the final story in the collection. This is the only time where I had a bit of an issue with where the story appeared among this group. Otherwise, I actually think that they were arranged pretty well. There's kind of a nice mixing going on of Miss Marple in, vi- you know, in a village, Miss Marple abroad. And here we have one that's a little bit more authentic and this one's a little more audacious and it's it's mixed up very well. But I just, I, I definitely wouldn't have chosen this one to be the final story. There are also two mistakes that Dolly Bantry makes that didn't sit well with me. The first is we learned from the very beginning of Agatha Christie introducing this character that she's a gardener. And it's hard to imagine that she would make the horticultural mistake that provides that telling clue to Miss Marple, planting a flower that she doesn't like in order to hide the body. She's smarter than that. She, she, when it comes to flowers, as she has demonstrated in story after story, she's smarter than that. She's and smarter I than Miss Marple, even when it comes yes, to gardening. I think it's absolutely. the one area where she that's a, I didn't think about that, Brad. Excellent point. And the other point is that I think that if you look at the entire Miss Marple canon, there are maybe three people who really know Miss Marple, and Dolly Bantry is one of them. And for her, even though she discusses it at the end about how she felt about calling Miss Marple back home and how torn she was, I think in the end, the real Dolly Bantry would not have called Miss Marple back home because she knows perfectly well that Miss Marple would have seen right through her. She knows mm. her. They are best, they are, you know, they are Mame and Vera. They are Lucy and Ethel. They are best friends and she would see right through her. So let her have her trip to London and then discover this all happened. Maybe she would say, Dolly, why didn't you call me? She's like, oh, Jane, what could you have done? And then Miss Marple could have wondered for the rest of her life, but it it, it rang a little false. She knew Miss Marple would know what's going on, would spot it. She, She knows how smart her friend is. Agreed. I think there are ways to finesse this story, which really is an excellent story. Because again, I I really liked the mystery where instead of having Dolly Bantry summon Miss Marple, it's like Miss Marple gets there anyway. And perhaps Dolly Bantry is doing everything she can not to have Miss Marple come, both because she knows Miss Marple will solve it and see right through it. But also she doesn't want to put Miss Marple in that position. And then you end it with Miss Marple, of course, figuring it out and confronting Dolly Bantry. And you, I, I think the truly authentic way to end the story would be Dolly Bantry saying, I'm turning myself in because that's what I have to do. I did something wrong. Miss Marple saying, yeah. And it's a sad ending, but it's kind of a, you know what? Order is restored and this is what it is. And you know, we'll, we'll go on from here that I would have bought. And if that had been the case, if those tweaks had been made, this would have been one of my very favorites because there, there really is so much to love. And it's also beautifully written. This is a very well-written one. It is. Lee Bardugo writes wonderful YA fantasy novels, and it was nice to see how she took to Miss Marple into the whole, the whole canon. I do think that even though it takes place in the 70s, I can see Dolly turning herself in and Miss Marple going to Sir Henry or to Dermot Craddock and saying, look, you've got to understand what happened here and that maybe we'd get a little precognitive Me Too going on here. There'd be some understanding of what Dolly did, particularly since Sir Henry enjoyed many a dinner at Gossington Hall and certainly he would be in Dolly's court. Well, and that would have been, you know, I can swallow and even enjoy 
Miss Marple having a different perspective from the one that Agatha Christie gave her when Agatha Christie was writing those stories. And we saw that happen in the Dreda Say Mitchell, where she certainly, the way that she was relating to and interacting with the Black characters in that story is very different from what she did in Caribbean Mystery. And we saw that also in, in Naomi Alderman's story, when she certainly had a perspective on anti-Semitism and, and interactions with a Jewish character that were very different, probably from what Agatha Christie would have done if she were writing that story when she was writing her Miss Marple novels and short stories. So that's okay. It's like opening up Miss Marple to these perspectives that we have now. I think we can buy that. And if you had done it incrementally with her perhaps saying not let her hang, you know, like Agatha Christie's Miss Marple is very excited by capital punishment, which is actually one of my favorite things about her because it's so yes. dark. It's so, she's like, I can't wait to see him hang. <laughs> you know, she's practically like... The ending of uh, 450 from Paddington. I won't say yes. the murderer's name, but she says, and I do feel so thankful that we still have capital punishment because if anyone deserved to hang, it's that person. Yes. She basically, you know, chomping at the proverbial bit there in front of the gallows. But um, <laughs> we love but, her for that. <laughs> I love her for that. But if we had her here doing the opposite, right? Saying, well, this is a case where there are mitigating circumstances and doing everything she could to at least make Dolly, ba Dolly Bantry's sentence as lenient as possible. I would have appreciated that and bought that and said, oh, okay, Th this is a, a more modern day take on Miss Marple. But just having Miss Marple let her get off completely and just flout the law and all notions of justice, which we've seen Miss Marple adhere to in story after story after story. And that was too great a leap for me. And, yeah. and again, for the final story, I, it sounds like we feel similarly in that the story though, being beautifully written and, and having such a great mystery is also one to celebrate actually, even if it perhaps takes a wrong turn at the very end. I think uh, this is a story that seemed to divide a lot of people who approached this collection with trepidation. I don't think they like the idea of Dolly Bantry being a killer. I do think Bardugo does a great job of setting this up as sort of a noble murder, if such a thing exists. You know, he, he laughs in her face. He pushes her. He pushes her to the brink physically and emotionally. Yeah. He causes the suicide of a, of, a, of a kind and good person who was a gardener, who was a protege of Dolly's. So she sets it all up for Dolly to get a reduced sentence. And then she sort of goes off the rails a bit by having Miss Marple say, don't worry, dear, we'll cover it up. It is very clever. You mentioned this, but I just want to highlight it is very clever to set this at Gossington, which we saw get renovated in the mirror crack from side to side, you know, from its old world splendor into this somewhat tacky, right? 60s mansion that the that this uh, American actress was living in with her director husband. And now we're seeing it get renovated again, back to its previous splendor or something approximating that that was clever. And and I liked that because it was it was riffing on what Christie had done in the mirror crack from side to side. There is one continuity error that I found in this story, and it really is one of the few that I think exists in this whole collection. Um, so I, I'm mentioning it more as a compliment because I think it shows how fantastic the continuity really is in this collection by and large. But there is an explicit mention made in this story to Dolly's two children. 
And I looked this up last night to make sure that I wasn't making this up. But in the mirror crack from side to side, when Dolly Bantry is prattling on to Marina Gregg about the joys of having oodles of children and grandchildren, uh, she says that she has two sons and two daughters and pretty widely spaced. One in Kenya, one in South Africa, one near Texas, and the other, thank goodness, in London. So that's a small continuity error I just wanted to point out. I didn't remember that. I'm ashamed. <laughs> Nobody deserves to be a mother of four more than Dolly Bantry. I would have loved to hang out with Dolly Bantry uh, after school, you know? Oh, absolutely. Well, I feel like it's funny because Hastings also is said to have four children in Curtin. And I feel like that's kind of Christy shorthand for just like, you know, a robust family. <laughs> like just <laughs> lots and lots of family. Right, right, right. Oh, four children. My God. Yeah. I don't know if I'd wish that on anyone. Well, you have two. <laughs> I do. And that's why I, I can't imagine having two more. Well, perhaps that is the best place to uh, stop our discussion of this collection. But we're obviously not going to rank the stories here as Catherine and I did for the novels. As we said at the beginning of this conversation, I think there's something to celebrate in every one of these stories. And it's interesting to have your favorites and, and talk about why you might like them. But what I would hope is that people do engage with the project overall, because I think it's one that's coming out of a deep and abiding love of Agatha Christie. And, and that's what this podcast has always been about. And it's what my fandom is about. And I would imagine that you could probably say the same thing, Brad. Can I just also say that I think it's so appropriate that when it was decided to continue these characters that Poirot was continued in novel form and Miss Marple continued in the short story form, because that is really her home. When you get Miss Marple in a novel, she tends to appear on page 87, <laughs> covering from rheumatism or somewhere that Raymond has sent her saying, excuse me, please, but I have a point to make. And then we leave her for a long period of time so that the uh, sleuth du jour, the detective du jour, can do all his interviewing and then report to Miss Marple and then she swoops in with the solution. But the short stories revolve around her and all of these do. And I think that is a tribute to her. And I don't know if there are Miss Marple novels in the future, but I do think these stories really resonate with me as a Christie fan and as a Miss Marple fan. And if there was another volume, I would run and get it. I would too. I mentioned this to David Braun when I interviewed him because he, of course, was the publisher for this collection. But I was surprised by the joy that I found reading them. And just in this exercise of taking Miss Marple in lots of different directions, it just felt like 12 different experiences of a friend of yours, a very talented writer friend of yours saying, hey, I really love Miss Marple. How about this? Like, how about we just, we like went in this direction with her? Like, wouldn't that be cool? And me being like, yeah, yeah, it would. <laughs> like 12 times over. And like, there there was just a lot of joy in that experience. And I, I'm not sure what I was expecting from this collection, but that was a really pleasant surprise. Well, and I think this speaks to the whole nature of adaptation and continuation, which we're right at the cusp of with Agatha Christie, really. This is going to go on for years, isn't it? that a good adaptation can combine the authentic and the audacious. That we can say, oh, I recognize this person, a person I've always loved. And yet it's so interesting to see her in this new situation. And I think this author does a wonderful job 
combining those authentic factors into a brand new situation that Agatha Christie herself may have never thought of. Um, and that's, I think, the direction that a really good adaptation goes in and perhaps could even calm the fluttery hearts of many a purist. <laughs> well, that is a perfect note to end on. And uh, I really so appreciate you coming on and spending as much time as you did <laughs> oh, uh, talking about these stories and delighting in them. I've wanted you on for such a long time, Brad, and I could not have gotten a better conversation than the one we just had. So thank you so much. It was such a pleasure, Kemper. I had so much fun. Thank you again to Brad. It was such a pleasure having this conversation with him about the Marple collection. I loved gossiping with him in the best of ways. Whenever possible, I really do so enjoy bringing a co-host on because that was always the model, of course, by which this podcast started. And though no one will ever replace the one and only Catherine Brobeck, I know that she would so appreciate all of these friends who are coming on and helping me out by spending some time chatting about Agatha Christie. And on that note, in my very next episode, I will be bringing on another co-host. In two weeks' time, I will be discussing the final Parker Pine short story. That would be The Regatta Mystery. And I will be discussing The Regatta Mystery and Parker Pine generally with Michelle Kasmer, who is an avid agathologist. She is a professor of information science at Florida State University here in the U.S., and she has maintained for many, many years now a scholarly agenda in crime and detective fiction focused on Agatha Christie. She takes an information science approach to her analysis of Christie. We are going to talk about what exactly that means. It is fascinating. But Michelle travels frequently and widely to talk about Agatha Christie. Catherine and I both met her many years ago at our first conference that we attended in Cambridge at the Agatha Christie Conference, and she has been a friend ever since. So I am so excited to have her on and to discuss Parker Pine with her. As you may remember, Parker Pine inspired a lot of passion, especially on the part of one Catherine Brobeck. So I wanted to go out in style here as much as possible for our final Pine story. So we'll be having a bi-coastal episode to celebrate Parker Pine, heart specialist. <laughs> Should you want more content from the podcast in the meantime, you can, of course, go to our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. I have provided a link to our Patreon page in the notes to this episode. You can email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at allaboutthedame and on Instagram at allaboutagatha. You can also find my co-host Brad on Twitter at Brad K. Friedman, B-R-A-D-K-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. And once again, his fabulous blog about the golden age of detection in books and on screen is Ah Sweet Mystery. You can find it at AsweetMysteryBlog.com. Just click on the link in the notes to this episode. 
please give the podcast a rating and or a review if you haven't yet done so. We've been getting a few more of those in recently, and it really warms my heart to see them. So it is not too late. It's never too late for ratings and reviews. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.